0: This is Two Guys in the Bible, a conversation on theology, culture, and the Word of God. Uh, For those of you listening, thank you for tuning in. Appreciate it. Welcome. Uh, Please like the show, share the show, uh, support the show uh, if you're uh, willing and able to do so. Uh, We certainly appreciate uh, you listening, and uh, we appreciate you uh, encouraging others to listen. And We hope that this show will be a blessing to you. Uh, normally, uh, I'd be with I'd be with uh, Dylan Keniston this morning, uh, virtually, trying to uh, address a, a particular topic, but um, sadly, Dylan was unable to join me uh, recently because he is still trying to get moved from uh, where he's currently living to his new house, and everything's just slowed down and and been more difficult to get everything done uh, with with the businesses uh, still being uh, still being shut down and him still having to. Uh, work virtually from home, so just pray for him. Just pray that uh, things will move quickly so that he doesn't have to pay for two mortgages any longer than he has to. Uh, so uh, hopefully we'll be able to get together uh, uh, virtually and, and knock out an episode uh, in the next two weeks or so. We're we're thinking of some some really good ideas to tackle. So we want to make sure that we're doing our good our good diligence our homework uh, to get you a, a good quality discussion. Uh, In the meantime, today, what I want to do is basically a mini Bible study on the topic of Romans 13 and our relationship to the civil government. Um, The reason I bring up this topic is because, I mean, you hear it quite often, uh, whether it's on social media or maybe in person or just a a lot, it seems like. The, the chapter in verse Romans thirteen that phrase has been brought up more often than usual, <coughs> excuse me today or this during this time than before and it's understandable because I mean usually when uh, when situations come up, uh, people begin to think about um, you know the relevant bible passages and and, and all of a sudden uh, those those passages become the focus of of people's people's thinking and people's discussion uh, during these times. And and so it is not a surprise that Romans 13, which is one of the key passages on uh, submission to the civil government, uh, has been brought up now more recently than ever before, because we are in a time where, especially now that we're approaching uh, two months into uh, a lockdown, that folks are... You know, they're, they're a little divided. And even amongst the Christian community, there is division as far as um, submission to the governing authorities. And I do not want to spend the time here, especially without Dylan, uh, having a conversation about what can, what should we as Christians do at this time? You know, is there ever a time not to do something? You know, whatever the case may be. But what I want to do is just go through Romans 13. And, and a few other passages and try to give some general principles as to how Christians should approach this passage, handle this passage, and, uh, and apply it as well. So, sorry, I just get a little drink of coffee there. So, let's begin by looking at Romans 13. <clears throat> now, actually, uh, it is lamentable that... Well, not lamentable. I mean, it's good that we have chapter numbers, chapter divisions. But to be honest, if you remember, uh, the letter to the Romans would not have had chapter divisions, okay? And so whenever you're reading uh, a scripture on your own, just consider that the chapter divisions are simply one person's, one Christian's best guess. And, and, they, and they were... They originated, they were, they were uh, developed hundreds of years ago. I don't know exactly who or when um, put the chapter divisions in there, chapter verse divisions, but they're for the most part useful. But he had to make a decision as to where he would break up the line of thinking. <coughs> Excuse me. So I would encourage you to go back to Romans chapter 12 before you start going into Romans chapter 13. And here's the reason why. So we'll start with, Uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 14. So here we go. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lonely. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, Now, move on to Romans chapter 13. Keep what was just said in mind. Romans 13, excuse me, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. All right, so as we look at this passage, if you recall back in Romans chapter 12, uh, God, speaking through the Apostle Paul, is basically reminding Christians and commanding them not to be proud and haughty, but to, but to associate with lowly, and, and specifically not to repay anyone evil for evil. And this certainly ties into uh, what Jesus taught regarding uh, loving your enemies and uh, and, and, not, uh, and if they hurt you, not to, not to hurt them back out of, out of spite or vengeance. And this is where Paul says in Rome, and, and, and 12, chapter 12, verse 19, never avenge yourselves. Believe it to the wrath of God, for it is written, "Vengeance is mine; I will repay." Right? So, so, so Paul goes from talking about, "Okay, Christian, do not get revenge yourself. Do not be someone who seeks revenge in your in your life, in your daily life, against those who who hurt you, wrong you, persecute you, uh, and whatnot." But then immediately he goes into a section where he describes the government as being God's Avenger to carry out God's wrath. So on the one hand, Paul saying the Christians, listen, leave it to God, leave it to God's wrath. God will avenge. Leave it to God. And then in the very next section, he describes the avenger. He describes the civil magistrate as an avenger who bears the sword and is a servant of God. Right and who is a terror to the evildoer okay excuse me so uh the point in all this is that is that paul is contrasting okay what the christian as an individual should do and what god has provided and namely god is exercising his wrath his vengeance using the civil government as an instrument now of course God uses other things to bring judgment. We, we, all, we all know about that. We know about pestilence and famine and plagues and and all the judgments of God. But it, it looks like Paul's making it very clear that the civil government is an instrument, uh, a servant of God to bring about vengeance, specifically vengeance. So um, it just highlights the difference between the two and that... Um, and that the civil government is serving a purpose that God has has given it. Now, interestingly, this section uses two two descriptions of uh, of the government that are kind of religious in nature. So, there's a sev- several times in Romans 13 that Paul describes the government as God's servant. Okay, now. The Greek word being used there is uh, diakonos, so where we get the word deacon from. So several times, uh, basically the government is God's deacon to do, you know, for the good of the people, to to be a terror to bad conduct, and to carry out God's wrath. Okay, and then in in uh, verse six, another word is used, and uh, the word for minister. And that word is uh, latergos, okay, where we get the word liturgy from. And, and it would have been the same word that would be used to describe um, people who serve in the temple, uh, ministering before the Lord, right? So it's just interesting that we have two terms that have very deep religious connotations, at least when it comes to how they're used in Scripture. <clears throat> and Paul is attaching them to the government. And, and this certainly is uh, worth bringing up in a future discussion on, you know, secular versus sacred. Is there really such a thing as, as secular authorities? And I think an argument could be made that no, Because even at the beginning of Romans 13, uh, verse 1, Paul even says, no authority has been instituted except by God. So all authorities, in a sense, are not secular. They all have a purpose given to them by God. They have a divine mandate, a command, a requirement that they're supposed to do something. And God's deacon is supposed to be an avenger that carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer, supposed to punish evil. Um, in one of the commentaries on the Epistle of the Romans by Douglas Moo, I, I greatly recommend this commentary. It's, it's quite large, but uh, Moo is particularly thorough in going through uh, the book of Romans. And in this section, he points out uh, an important point here. I want to quote uh, what Moo says regarding Paul's point. Quote, for the purpose of his argument at this point, Paul is assuming that the laws of the state embody those general moral principles that are taught in the Word of God. Okay. Uh, the evil, I'm continuing here in the quotation, the evil that the civil authorities punish, therefore, is evil in the absolute sense. Those acts that God himself condemns as evil. End quote. So when Paul says, you know, that, 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 that the civil magistrate's punishing evil, right? Punishing the wicked, a terror to bad conduct. Paul is implying that there is an objective moral standard here that, that both he and his readers would understand and would agree with. Okay, so it's not just subjective. Just because, just because the government, government calls a particular behavior evil doesn't mean that it is. Okay, there is a standard of morality, a standard of behavior, uh, even for uh, the uh, the civil magistrate. Um, and so even though here Paul is clearly using a description, he's describing what the civil authorities are doing, he's also implying a standard of behavior for them, okay? The civil magistrate is supposed to do something. And it's actually not <coughs> too different from when Paul, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> in Romans, not Romans, uh, Ephesians, uh, talks about husbands and wives, right? Uh, in uh, Ephesians chapter 5, Paul, des- Paul describes, he's using more of a description, like he says, uh, the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. And one could ask the question, is that always true? What about bad husbands? What about abusive husbands? Are they the heads of their families? Are they the heads of their wives? And so um, <clears throat> I think there's, there's a both and here. There is an objective, like as a husband, by definition, husbands in general, husbands are heads of their wives. Okay, that does not mean that every husband is acting like it or is behaving that way as he is supposed to behave. Husbands are supposed to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, okay? husbands are A lot of husbands are doing that, okay? So does that mean that they stop being husbands? Well, what's really happening there is they're just not, they're not fulfilling the role that they were designed to fulfill in that regard. And, and so in that sense, the husband is acting in disobedience to God. Uh, not fulfilling his duties. And so um, I think the same kind of argument would be applicable in Romans 13. You know, Paul is describing what the government is supposed to be doing, and uh, when it's not doing that, it's clearly not meeting the requirements that God has set for it. Okay, now that being said, how do we apply this passage? Okay, well, It seems easy at first, right? Okay, just submit to the governing authorities. And there are some Christians who would argue that no matter what the government says, Romans 13 applies. Submit to them. You just submit. And that's the way way it works. Well, it's not so easy because when the government is commanding wickedness or prohibiting righteousness, so, there's two things, right? Christians are supposed to serve God. Uh, uh, there, are, there are sins of omission and commission, right? Christians are supposed to do good works and also refrain from sin, okay? Now, when the government is preventing you from doing good works or commanding you to sin, um, should you obey or not? And I think it's pretty clear. Uh, we have in the book of Acts where, where the, uh, the Jewish leaders are commanding the disciples to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. So that's a good thing, right? They're, the good thing is preaching in the name of Jesus. So they're supposed to do this good work of proclaiming the gospel, and they're being told, stop it. And, of course, they say, should we obey God or obey men? The, impl- the implication there is that they should obey God and that they're going to obey God. And even though they get chastised and, and beaten, they continue proclaiming the name of Christ. Okay. Uh, and the other example would be uh, refraining from sinning. And I think the clearest example is actually more of an Old Testament example uh, in the book of Daniel, when Daniel's three friends are commanded by Nebuchadnezzar to bow down before the statue of gold and to worship. Uh, in that case, they're being commanded to sin. Um, and Nebuchadnezzar wants them to do that and threatens them if they don't, and they refuse, and rightly so. So it's, it's pretty clear that when, script, when, when we're being commanded to sin or to uh, refrain from good works, we are to disobey, or we have the option of disobeying. And I would say we should disobey. I don't really think it's optional. I don't think you, it wasn't an option for Daniel's three friends to to bow down or not. Um, It would have been a sin for them to comply and to bow down to to the statue. And it would have been a sin for the disciples to stop proclaiming Christ out of fear of the Jewish leaders um, there. So, okay, enough of that. So I think we all can agree that there are some times when... um, We we cannot obey. But there's actually another more complicated situation that I think is really more applicable to our modern context than it would be to, let's say, the Babylonian or Old Testament context or the Roman context. And that is this question. What do you do when... Different rulers disagree or they command different things. And that, because Paul simply says here, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Okay. Well, to put it in a different way, what do you do when mommy and daddy are fighting? What do you do when you're trying to submit and but the different levels of authority are actually at odds with each other? And aren't on the same page, and that's that's difficult. Now, in in, in the First Peter chapter two, Peter uh, continues his, you know con- is actually saying very similar things to what Paul says. In First Peter chapter two verse thirteen, he says, "Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good." Okay, so but even, even here, Peter is pointing out that there are, there are different human institutions. There's the emperor at the tippy top, and there are governors that are sent by him to do certain things, right? Now, for the most part, historically, I mean, there were times where this was not the case, but the governors would have been on the same page as the emperor. They would have been uh, two sides of the same coin. There wouldn't have been a problem or, or difficulty here because if the governor disobeyed the emperor, usually it would cost him his head. So, but we live in a culture that has, I think, rightly so, uh, divided power amongst various groups of people. So, uh, if we were living in the medieval period, or even in the ancient world, we would have probably have you know a noble above us. You know, you got the king. You got the nobles, you have the barons, the countess, the counts, the dukes, and the earls or whatnot. And as a, as the common folk, we would have been under the authority of a particular noble living on his land, um, paying homage to him and basically serving him. And uh, there wouldn't really be many other governing authorities to to have to you know figure out how to submit to. But that, that's, that's the, I wouldn't say there wouldn't be any, because they're still the king, right? And there have been historical examples where you have the nobles who are acting in opposition to the king, and the people have to really decide who are they going to follow. Do they obey the nobles, or do they obey the king? And this is where it becomes a little bit more difficult to apply Romans 13. Because how do you be subject? How are we to be subject to the governing authorities? Well, I want to give a couple of examples in Scripture, and then we can maybe try to look at how it might work out in, in our own lives. Um, there are a couple of examples in Scripture where those who are in authority are actually the ones that are sinning, disobeying. And not the actual, not the people themselves. Um, The one is kind of implicit, and this is in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Um, This is the same chapter in the Old Testament where Israel demands a king. Now, I do think the people did demand a king wrongfully at this point. Their hearts were in the wrong places because they wanted a king like the other nations around them. But the people that actually voice their concerns to Samuel because Samuel is the head is the prophet leading Israel right now. Uh here's what happens. Uh in first Samuel chapter eight, uh, starting in verse one. When Samuel became old he made his sons judge over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Okay, so According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I have brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them, and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. And then Samuel goes on to talk to the people about tyranny. So what we see there is that yes, the people want a king, but who's coming to Samuel? It's the elders. The elders are not in obedience, the elders are not obeying, they're the ones that are directly um, demanding that Samuel give them a king like the other nations. So you have uh, one authority um, acting contrary to the ultimate authority. God and Samuel are both against this idea, but the elders are for it. And the elders are the authority over the people, but they're under the authority of of God and Samuel. So kind of a tricky situation here. Uh, a more explicit one is actually seen with the Apostle Paul. And this is where uh, we, many of us know that Paul appeals to Caesar. And a lot of people, we kind of just breeze over that, uh, thinking, well, yeah, he appealed to Caesar. You know, maybe he didn't need to do that. But I think he, you know, whatever the reason, well, I don't even know why it's in the Bible. Right? Why is that even brought up? And I think it's interesting uh, let's, let's, that we walk through this and kind of point out a couple of things. I'm not going to necessarily read the whole thing, but starting in Acts chapter 24, what we have is Paul is obviously arrested, um, and he's brought before, in this, in this chapter, Governor, Governor Felix. Okay, So here is what Paul says. This is Acts chapter 24, <clears throat> verse 10. When the governor nodded for him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge of this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But, I, but this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Now, we'll stop there. And what, what is Paul saying here in his defense? He brings up a couple of interesting points to Felix. First of all, he says that the accusers should be there against him. Okay? They, they're supposed to, he's supposed to be able to face his accusers according to the law, but they have not come. So now Paul is giving his defense. There's no, accus, there's no accusers. The accusations are more speculative. There's no real witnesses either. Um, and, and no one is saying what wrong he's done. They just basically complained about him. Okay, so we'll continue in verse twenty-two. Here's what Paul. Here's what Felix does. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, "When Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case." Then he gave orders to the centurion that Paul should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, but that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. Now, it says in verse twenty-four, after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And, and as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So we see here, uh, consider the injustice that's going on. Paul <laughs> Paul is being kept in prison for two years. His trial is not being done. Felix, if he really cared about justice, would actually have done, the, had done due diligence. He would have brought the accusers, we would have the trial, and it would have been done. But no, because he wants a bribe, he's keeping Paul in prison. And he's trying to do the Jews a favor. This is this is just dirty. This is just dirty ruling. This is a horrible, uh, wicked, wicked governor. Uh, and and he's he's not performing justice. He is perverting justice and accepting bribes. The very thing that that God condemns in Scripture and that Samuel's sons were guilty of performing uh, when the elders came asking for a king. They were accepting bribes and perverting justice. So now, chapter 25, we see that that Festus arrives. So we'll begin here. Uh, Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summoned him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he intended himself to go there shortly. So said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. So pause. So it seems like Festus is actually trying to do justice. They want Festus to bring Paul down to Jerusalem so they can kill him. But Festus is basically saying, well, no, I'm going to go to Caesarea. That's where he's at. That's where, and by the way, that's where the judgment seat would have been for the governor. So if any one of you wants to go with me to bring charges against him, come on, let's go. So basically, let's bring the witnesses. Now, after Festus stayed among them not, more than eight or 10 days, he went to Caesarea. And the next day, he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense these words, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried to the Jews. I have done no wrong as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die. I do not seek to escape death, but if there's nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. All right, we'll stop there. So, Here's the interesting thing. It seems at first that Festus might have wanted to do justice. You know, he's getting the Jews to bring their accusers to Caesarea where Festus would do his job, right? But it's just crazy because when they get there and, there's, and, and Paul is standing before Festus in Caesarea on trial, Festus actually asks him, Do you want to go to Jerusalem? and there be tried on these charges before me. It seems like the implication there, I mean, it's, just the, it's, really, it's really mind-boggling that Festus is trying to do the Jews a favor. And then he asks Paul, hey, Paul, you know, you're Jewish. Do you want to go to Jerusalem and do this? We can just knock it out right there. And Paul knows what will happen to him. He knows that he will not be getting a fair trial in Jerusalem and that they'll probably just kill him on the way. And that's exactly what the Jewish leaders want to do. They want to ambush Paul and just assassinate him, uh, murder him uh, right there. They're not interested in justice. And here, neither is Festus. He wants to do favors. He has no desire to do justice. Um, and, and he just instead of just sending Paul to Jerusalem, he tries to wash his hands of it by basically asking if Paul wants it. Hey, Paul, do you want to basically... Uh, bring a death sentence upon yourself, you know, not a problem for me. I have no problem if you want to go to Jerusalem. I'm happy to, to get you off of my hands and to be done with this problem and to win some favor with the Jews. I mean, that's really what's what's happening here, and it's quite, it's quite sad. And remember, Paul has been here for two years now. He's still waiting for justice. I mean, is there no statute of limitations going on here? He's just being uh, perpetually under arrest, waiting, waiting for for them, they're them waiting for him to give him a bribe. Now, here, but what Paul says is interesting. He says, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. He's like, this is where I'm supposed to be, okay? And he says, I did no wrong. I didn't violate the Jewish law. I didn't violate the temple's law. I didn't even violate Caesar's law, okay? I've committed no offenses here. Um, and he says, if I deserve to die, I'm okay with it. I am not trying to escape death, But there is nothing to these charges. And he says, no one can give them up to me. I appeal to Caesar. And so what we have in this situation is that Paul recognizes the higher authorities, Governor Festus, Governor Felix, are sinning. They are perverting justice and accepting bribes, and they are not doing the right thing. They're not not interested in punishing evil and praising the good. They're not interested in being an avenger and being a servant of God. They're not interested in that. They're serving themselves. Okay? And for this reason, Paul rightfully appeals to the higher authority. He appeals to Caesar, who is the ultimate authority in the land. Okay? Um, And it seems Paul is very much exercising a Romans 13. He is not submitting. He's not submitting to to Festus' attempts to send him to Jerusalem and pervert justice. He's not... Submitting to Felix's request for a bribe, expectation for a bribe. No, 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 no. And they probably would have been happy for him to submit. It's like Paul, just submit, just come on, Paul, just pay some money. This is how things are done. This is how justice is done in Rome. We 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 take some money, and 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 Paul basically says no. It's not going to happen. I appeal to Caesar. So, uh, in light of that story. From, from Acts chapter 24, 25. And in light of Romans 13, my encouragement to you in applying Romans 13 is this. And I don't want to go much longer here. The whole point of this is to get you thinking and to, and to learn about how to apply this. What is the ultimate authority in any land? Every land has one, right? So in Paul's day, in Peter's day, it would have been the emperor. Okay, emperor is the ultimate authority. Well, now, how do you apply that principle to a constitutional republic such as the United States? What is the ultimate authority in the land? Is it the president? No, it's not. It is actually the Constitution of the United States because every officer, including the president, swears to uphold and defend the Constitution. So the Constitu- if you appeal to Caesar, you actually appeal to the Constitution in our case. Appealing to the Constitution is no different, really, in principle. Than appealing to Caesar. Okay. And the President and the Congress and the Supreme Court, they are obligated to submit to the rightful governing authority, which is the Constitution. Okay. And now, then we have the issue of the states, because you also have state constitutions. And this gets into the conversation: you know, how does the state relate to the federal government? And I think, I think a fair reading of the original constitution in the United States is pretty clear that whatever power is not given to the federal government explicitly is reserved to the states and to the people, okay? So, you know, right there, that should settle the matter as far as in general, what's the default? The default is that the state has the power unless the power was given to the federal government by the Constitution, remember, the Constitution is the ultimate uh, uh, authority here, uh, inaugurated and established by the people many, many, many years ago, right, and it 's the Constitution that is delegating authority. The Constitution gives authority, kind of like an emperor, the Emperor sends governors to do to do his his will to to perform his service, and in a way, the Constitution is delegating the federal government, okay, federal government, you do this, you do this. State governments, you have this, you have this. And the state constitution is the same way. What is the ultimate authority in the state of, let's say, Pennsylvania? Technically, it's the Constitution of Pennsylvania. The Constitution of Pennsylvania is Caesar for the Pennsylvania, we're gonna talk about the state level. The governor, legislature, and the courts are under that authority, okay? But then it gets even more complicated when you have, what if the governor is obeying, but then you have county commissioners, you have representatives, legislatures that are not obeying the Constitution. Who is right? And that is the question that we as Christians have to work through. We have to work through who is, first of all, set out. Who, what is the hierarchy of authority? Who is the highest authority and how does it, kind of break down from there? How does it flow downward from there? Second is, okay, who is in obedience to the, to the authority, to the higher authority? And then you have to also consider the highest authority of God. He actually is the highest authority, okay, over all of this. But underneath that is the constitution. So how does that play out? And when one, when one level of government, a lower governor, is in disobedience to the emperor, or to Caesar, or to the constitution, how do you respond? And I think we should take the principle from Paul, we appeal to Caesar, there is a place where you appeal to the higher authority. And actually, we see this in the military and in, business, in the business world too. just apply it in, uh, into um, your own personal life. Uh, as a military officer, I swear to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. That's my Caesar, is the Constitution. But I'm also, I also swear to obey the lawful orders of those officers appointed over me. Well, that's interesting because what's a lawful order, right? And that's where you have to bring in, okay, Constitution, okay, God's law, you know, uniform, uh, a code of military justice. What is lawful, right? But at the end of the day... If my direct commander issues me an unlawful and unconstitutional order, I do not. I am obligated not to obey it, actually. And I should appeal to his commander, to the higher authority, for help. Because who's the one that's in rebellion? Who's the one that's not submitting? In that situation, it would be my commander. My commander is the one that would be disobeying and in rebellion against the higher authority and the constitution but but that commander my commander might be accusing me he might be saying hey major loophold um you know you're the one that's disobeying me you're in rebellion against me you're committing mutiny against me you know you are wrong but i could then say sir with all due respect you and here's where you are actually disobeying the higher authority the lawful authority, you are out of line, sir. And I appeal to Caesar. I appeal to the higher authority. I will not comply with this unlawful command. It's not an easy thing to do, but rebellion and 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 disobedience is not so clear cut as we would like to to think. It's not like the movies, like you know, where you know, just. And moving in you know, the re- it's clearly who it's clear who the rebels are right. It's clear who the bad guys are. You know the oppressive, tyrannical government. They all look the same. They all do the same thing. And the good guys, you know, they're always the lowest on the on the on the totem pole here. They're always the the common folk that are trying to do the right thing. Yeah, but it gets a little messy when the people, let's say, are 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 seeking evil and sin, but then. A middle authority is actually trying to do the right thing, but then the ultimate authority, the emperor, is also evil. So what happens when you are the good authority and you're doing the right thing, but you're sandwiched in between two evil authorities or two evil groups? So it gets very complicated, and I'm not going to go through all the details now as to how you know we might work out our current situation in our country regarding stay-at-home orders, martial law, you know, whatnot, uh, you know, amongst this pandemic. But the issue is, my encouragement to you as, as Christians is think through these issues. It's important. You have to know who is Caesar and when do I appeal to him? Okay, and, you know, hopefully that'll be helpful to you. It's not an easy thing, especially in a, in a government where power is distributed amongst so many different groups, and rightly so. It just makes it a little more complicated to apply Romans uh, 13. You have to know who's obeying, who's the rightful authority, and, uh, and when do you appeal to the next level of authority. All right, well, that's all I have for today. I hope that you found this useful. Uh, I would encourage you to get in the scriptures, look through these passages and other passages very carefully, and uh, I hope this was a blessing to you. So, until next time, take care and God bless.